0: Hey folks, I'm Sam Evans-Brown. This is Outside In. So a few weeks ago, I presented our producers with a challenge. So my challenge for you all, should you choose to accept it, is to find Each of them was tasked with presenting you, our listeners, a particularly interesting nudge, something seemingly small or innovative, an invention that perhaps has had a profound impact on the world. And for those of you out there who know the behavioral economics origin of the term nudge, I would like to know that we are fully aware that none of these are actual nudges, and I'm fine with that. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Of the many people who know <laughs> what that means, <laughs> it's a thing. It's a whole thing. Uh, So they presented, you voted, and I am now joined by the contestants to hear the results from our episode, A Battle of Tiny Proportions. First off, we have producer Taylor Quimby, whose nudge was the ball bearing. These things are so important. Uh, to our mechanical lives that I had to sign an NDA just to visit this ball bearing factory. A, a non-disclosure agreement. Hey, Taylor. Hello. Secondly, producer Sarah Ernst, whose nudge was the latex condom. But
1: they'd just be like, oh, I'm making sausages at home. And they would go home and make their own condoms out of sausage casings. Oh my god. <gasps> Hey, Sarah. <laughs> hey, Sam.
0: Third, our executive producer, Erica Janik, whose nudge was the ill-fated voyage of one Joseph Dombey.
1: That's correct. Hello, Sam. Hey, Erica. Dombey died in prison, Ugh. so the meter bar in kilogram never made it to the United States. Ugh. Oh, my God. And it would be another century before we officially went metric.
0: And finally, producer Justine Paradise, who argued that this whole contest was a superficial read on history that is ultimately a collective waste of all of our intellectual efforts.
1: Uh This is like a TED Talk of a prompt.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, That's
1: an insult, by the way.
0: (laughs) Hi, Justine. Hello. (laughs) Said like someone who thinks we're wasting our time. (laughs) Let's get this over with. People voted on Twitter, Facebook, and by filling out a form on our website. And Erica, you officially tabulated the results. So what's the story?
1: Based on emails, Facebook, and Twitter, the ball bearing received 99 votes. Mm. Woo. The condom, the latex condom, received 43. Mm-hmm. Woo. <laughs> <laughs> Mine on Tom on Bay. Uh, received fifty-seven, yeah, and this is silly. Received thirty-two wow. votes. Rude,
0: boo! <laughs> wow, people
1: were rude about my rude
0: <laughs> response. What? I feel like it really cut the legs out from under yours, though. I mean when I, like, when I listened back, when I was like, I was like, I agree with Justine, but like, we're all having fun. I think it's not I mean,
1: fun. It's like it's very irresponsible storytelling. <laughs> 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 well, I would like to point out though that there were some voting irregularities. <gasps> Many votes came in at the exact same time. So if we look at those, um, ball bearing, for example, I'm sorry to say, had the most voting irregularities. There were (laughs) three sets of 10 votes that all came in at the same time, plus one set of four votes that came in all at the same time. Sam did encourage openly people to vote early and often. And they followed the instructions. Voter fraud.
0: Not realizing how (laughs) easy it was to commit voter fraud. Still possibly more uh, trusted than the Iowa caucus.
2: (laughs) (laughs) To this
1: day. I will say that we're not just picking on Taylor. There were other voting irregularities. Though Sarah Ernst, pure squeaky clean, no irregularities there. (laughs) Pure
0: as a condom, (laughs) fresh from the package. So,
1: if we count all of those irregularities as one vote, the ball bearing actually has 69 votes, not
3: 99.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Dombe has 66. The condom still holding strong at 43. And this is silly is at 23
0: (laughs) so I I would still win but by a much much uh, smaller margin
1: that is correct I would also like to note though that um, the hyena also received an additional 23 votes during (laughs) the voting period so this is silly and the hyena are actually tied (laughs) for the number of votes
0: the hyena is a pretty good nudge So, um, aside from the fact that we have a very insecure voting apparatus, uh, does does this tell us anything, or are we still in the... I mean, this was good fun. I think this tells us the same thing that we learned from the hyena episode, which is that uh, you put on a very good presentation, and the presentation matters a lot.
1: Also, now you have to get a ball-bearing tattoo. There we go. <laughs> Will the station pay for it? No.
0: We think know you the answer to, answer to that. <laughs> Thank you to everyone who voted. If you have a good nudge that you think we should have considered, such as this one that I just got on Twitter from someone whose profile description is guy, dude, daddy, who says that we should have talked about the insulated wire, which is like a pretty good suggestion. Send us an email. It's outsidein at nhpr.org. So the Nudge Off reminded us of one of our favorite episodes, one about the pace of technological change and an industry that is changing faster than you may have realized. We made this back in 2018, but with spring around the corner and coming earlier every year, it's feeling particularly relevant again. So yeah, enjoy. Island Pond, Vermont is a tiny community of a couple hundred people up near the Canadian border. Like a lot of small, rural, northern New England towns, things are rough there economically. Income is around half the average for the rest of the state. And for years, wages have been falling and people were moving away. But then, a few years back, people started to hear about something through the grapevine.
3: Yeah, right. You hear things,
0: right? Up in that part
3: of the world, Sweet Tree was kind of a big deal.
0: Sweet Tree. That's the name of the company that got this community buzzing. There are two people talking here, but we've disguised their voices. I couldn't get anyone to tell me this story unless the interview was anonymous. At first, this was confusing because no one was saying anything particularly controversial. I have some theories about this, but we'll come back to them later. They were invited as part of a private tour of Sweet Tree's new facility. And
3: so you drive into this, this small Vermont, Northeast Kingdom town, and, and then you come upon what was formerly a Ethan Allen Furniture Manufacturing Facility. So it looks like a warehouse. It's like gray, corrugated um, metal siding. So the facility had very shiny, gleaming new stuff, and it just felt very strange. Like, we're walking into some creepy lab where you don't know what they're doing. I don't think that the region had seen anything like this kind of investment going into such a such a state-of-the-art, massive facility.
0: So what are they building? This, quote, creepy lab, unquote, was not growing organs or designing weapons for the Department of Defense, Sweet Tree was building a massive maple sugaring operation. Eventually, it would drill holes into as many as a million sugar maples and extract sap from those trees with more than 6,000 miles of tubing, enough to stretch all the way across the country. The owner, who it turns out was actually a Massachusetts-based life insurance company, is planning to sink tens of millions of dollars into the facility. When it's finished, it would be eight times bigger than the previous Largest maple sugaring operation in the United States. This was a facility that looked in every way like a maple syrup factory. Yes, industrial in scale, but still understandable. Taps in maple trees, evaporators for boiling the sap, maple syrup. Which is where we get to the weirdest part of this tour. So did anybody at any point ask, are you guys making maple syrup?
3: We asked whether they were making maple syrup, and they said no. We're making other products, and that was it. Uh, they they wouldn't reveal what what product they were going to go into. Obviously, this is not going to be. I mean, they were very clear that it was not going to be maple syrup sold in bottles. The the f- pervasive feeling that I got from that whole visit was, what's going on here, and what the heck are they doing with that sap if they're not making maple syrup?
0: this is outside in a show about the natural world and how we use it today mysteries are brewing in the sugar shack changes are coming to new england's sugar bushes and the very identity of a product that we've been crafting in basically the same way for centuries could be on the verge of a radical shift but a shift towards what Allow me to present for debate, from my very New England-centric perch up here in New Hampshire, the following statement. Maple syrup is the quintessential North American agricultural product. Discuss. I'd like to acknowledge here that there's a big chunk of our listeners who are not as intimately aware of where maple syrup comes from as we New Englanders are. So while you formulate your response to my debate prompt as a starting point, I think you need to understand the nostalgic picture of maple syrup that people like me have.
3: This one tree here has three trunks, so there's a bucket on each trunk.
0: The process of making maple syrup is slow. musical ones. Holes drilled into trees slowly, drip by drip fill buckets. Those buckets, gathered by hand, are poured together and boiled for hours, or days, until it becomes syrup. This is the romantic picture of maple syrup production that many New Englanders still have. A pure product, straight from a tree, straight out of a mature, living forest.
3: So... The sap needs cool nights and warm days for it to, for it to start So if we get a run of those nights that are in the 20s and temperatures that are in the 30s or 40s, then the sap will really flow. But if it freezes up, then it stops. Or if it gets above freezing, it'll also stop.
0: This is the home of Nancy Rittger, who lives in Hart's location, New Hampshire, a town with a population of a couple dozen people. She and her husband, Mark, hang around 60 buckets on maple trees in and around their property.
2: All right, that one's full.
0: <laughs> With just a couple of differences, this is what maple sugaring has looked like for hundreds, even thousands of years. Drip by drip by drip, log after log on the fire. It is the opposite of efficient. Efficient. It's about as simple a processed food as you can imagine. Native Americans used to slash maple trees with axes and gather sap in birch baskets. They would plop hot rocks inside to boil off the water, leaving behind the concentrated sugar. Nancy and Mark are only slightly higher tech than this. They drag the sap to the backyard on a sled. They boil it over an open fire in a big stock pot.
3: Because we're boiling down approximately 40 gallons of sap to one gallon of syrup, depending on how diligent we are, it could take a day or two or three days. You know, we don't always start it and finish it all at once. But we'll oftentimes come out here late in the day, build a fire, tend it until somebody's, you know, got dinner made and then go inside, have dinner, come back out, stoke up the fire and let it go until the morning.
0: And for a very long time, all of the nation's syrup was coming from operations like Nancy's. And this is one of the craziest facts that I learned while reporting this story. Peak production of maple for the United States was in 1860, when opposition to cane sugar made by exploiting the labor of enslaved people drove many northerners to seek a native sweetener. We're talking somewhere in the neighborhood of 6.4 million gallons, compared to 4.2 million last year. Since most of New England's forests were gone, probably every accessible maple tree would have had to have been tapped, and the labor involved would have been simply staggering. So if you had to estimate the man hours that you put into this every every season, what we would you We probably would stop doing
3: it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a hobby, remember? <laughs>
0: but for most of the maple syrup on your table, this is not what it looks like anymore. <laughs>
4: Yeah, it's not quite put together at the moment, but... um,
0: So those those need to be connected.
4: Yeah, these need to be connected.
0: This is me touring the University of Vermont's Maple maple Lab. Abby Vandenberg, head of the lab, is leading me on the tour, and I hope it doesn't weird her out to hear me say this, but I think she's probably the smartest person I've ever interviewed. In front of us are two identical, very large, very shiny, stainless steel evaporators. They're identical so that they can be used for maple syrup experiments.
4: So, for example, a... Uh, an aliquot of sap, you know, raw sap that has been concentrated to whatever percentage with reverse osmosis, and then the raw sap that was used to generate that concentrate processed simultaneously. Did you say an
0: aliquot? I
4: did. What is that? A portion. Okay. Sorry. You got, I'm in my science mode. Yeah, I'm going to throw it <laughs> out there. Um.
0: I like learning words, so this is great. <laughs> okay. but. These days, the whole process, the buckets, the carrying the sap back, the boiling, looks totally different. For starters, most of the work of concentrating sap into syrup is now done using reverse osmosis. This is a machine that pushes the sap through a membrane with very tiny, tiny holes that only let water through, leaving sap with more concentrated sugar left on the other side. Starting the boil with more concentrated sap saves sugar producers a ton of work and about two-thirds of their fuel costs, and lots of maple makers have switched to using it.
4: Abby and her team study whether that had an impact on the syrup's taste. We do extensive chemical analyses. We also do sensory evaluations to see can panelists taste an overall difference in the syrup produced with those two technologies. So taste, taste test. Sensory evaluation test. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, sensor experiments, taste taste evaluations. Seriously.
0: And... Huge brain, smarter than all of those particle <laughs> physicists. <laughs> And the answer to that question, by the way, is no, using reverse osmosis did not change the taste of syrup.
4: So um, it's really pretty remarkable.
0: Not only is the boiling of the sap now just the finishing step of making syrup, it's often done burning propane or oil instead of wood. And the iconic maple syrup buckets, gone.
4: That is probably the other major feature of modern maple production is collecting uh, sap in a network of tubing.
0: Now most sugar bushes which is what you call a um, forest full of maple trees are spider webs of blue and green plastic.
4: You can in addition to just collecting it based on gravity induced flow, you can augment that with adding vacuum to the system. So
0: vacuum. Like sucking the sap up through the roots of the tree
4: adding a vacuum pump to the end doesn't suck sap out but it increases the pressure differential between the inside of the tree and the outside of the tree okay so,
0: so not like sucking the sap out of the tree creating a steep pressure gradient the way your mouth does at the end of a straw when you're s- sucking
4: practically speaking, the ultimate result of this is that um, by using vacuum systems, we've been able to basically double the amount of yield that we get from an individual tree.
0: Reverse osmosis, plastic tubing, vacuum pumps, All of these innovations have been around for decades, but their adoption really only started to get serious after the year 2000. Since 2001, maple syrup yield has almost doubled. That product that seemed impossible to make efficiently? We are starting to make it efficiently, by God. We are making more gallons of syrup per tap than ever before. Which leads us to some maple anxiety that you might have caught on to. Next up, climate change may be hitting the maple syrup industry's sweet spot. A new study has found
1: that the trees that make maple syrup will struggle to survive climate change.
4: The best conditions? Cool nights just below freezing and warm days in the upper 40s.
0: So, is maple syrup doomed by climate change? No. (laughs) At least not soon. Eventually, it might get too hot for maples to grow in some places. But for now, Abby says, out of a six week long sugaring season over the last 50 years, we've lost on average about three days or 7% due to climate change.
4: You know, the yields per tab have actually been increasing that entire time. So at least currently, technology is really just swamping out any of the effects that the industry is experiencing from climate change.
0: So, gut check here, how do you feel about this? Buckets in the woods replaced with a network of tubes, wood fires replaced with oil, sap vacuumed up through the trees. Are we still feeling okay about this product? It's more efficient, right? Which ostensibly means it's cheaper, more accessible than it would be otherwise. So maybe we're cool with leaving our nostalgic picture behind.
2: This is called a a screw pump from Atlas Copco. It's uh, This is the most advanced, best vacuum pump in the
0: industry right here. Well, let's keep pulling this thread. So it's crazy here, to me, <clears throat> like, if you're used to backyard sugaring in the bucket where it's just like drip, 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 this is like already a torrent.
2: Yeah, and, and it's the same drip, drip, drip out of the tree. It's just this system has 8,000 of those drips coming to it, which is why... You see so much at once.
0: This is Mike Farrell, a former academic who recently moved into the private industry. He's working for a new company called The Forest Farmers, and they've invested in all the stuff. The best vacuum pumps. How much does something like that cost? This is (laughs) $25,000. Sensors and smartphone apps to monitor his vacuum-sealed tap lines and sap tanks. So I got an alert this morning. Concentrate upstairs is 91% full, so
2: I know, hey, idiot, don't overflow the concentrate tank.
0: (laughs) They've got the giant app-controlled reverse osmosis machine and, of course, the pièce de résistance, the huge stainless steel evaporator with more gauges than a submarine that one person can operate and make 600 gallons of syrup an hour.
2: We're trying to make it as automated and efficient as possible because where I want the labor, where I want my employees out in the woods, that's where you make your money at sugar is in the woods getting more sap out of the trees.
0: The money to pay for all these shiny sap tanks and miles of tubing is coming from two partners, one of whom is a senior advisor at Bain Capital, the firm where Mitt Romney used to work. Mike's operation is only about a quarter of the size of the mystery factory back at the beginning of the episode. But clearly these are not the same kind of sugaring operations that have been supplying us with syrup for the last hundred years, which were often dairy farmers looking for something to do to make money during the mud season. So what attracted Wall Street to northern Vermont's forests?
2: If the Quebec producers hadn't invested in that, I don't think, probably I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you about this.
0: To answer that question, we're headed north of the border. But first, a quick break. So, Mike Farrell, who makes maple syrup for a living didn't even taste the stuff until he was in grad school.
2: I mean, we didn't have the money for real maple syrup. We didn't have dogs growing up either. And so when Andrea had a dog and he was wagging his tail, I asked her, does he always do that with the tail? (laughs) (laughs) Right? So some things you just, you might not know about.
0: The first time he did try it was at a maple orchard owned by his college, when he was a student. And I was just
2: blown away. I mean, it was delicious and incredible. The whole process, of, you know, we got to see how the sap's coming out of the trees. And and so I, I wanted to try it. So I didn't do nearly enough research on how I should have done it. And I, I did some things that I couldn't believe I, I would do, you know.
0: Cue the hilarious first try at making maple syrup story.
2: My sap collection was I set up a tubing system. I got it. I, I don't know if I should. But we put black garbage bags inside a trash can, and that's where I ran the sap to it. sat there all week. So you should never do that. You know, I, I originally tried to boil it on the stove, and stuff is boiling over, and I burned two of my mom's best pots, and she said I couldn't do it anymore. So then I had to do it outside. We had a campfire pit with a, with a grate. So all the newspaper that I started to to fire goes up in the air and then lands in my pot of of
0: sap. (laughs) So anyway, so none of the stuff that we tried to make was any good. But Mike was in love. He wound up applying for a job, running Cornell's research forest, getting it despite being way underqualified, spending too much money for a piece of property right next door to work, and building his own house there. He had it made.
2: My position there was endowed. So I was guaranteed a salary for life, and uh, and I would walk to work. So really hard thing to give up, right?
0: It does seem like that would be a really hard thing to give up. So why would you? Well, you have to strike when the iron is hot, as they say.
5: Yes, my name is Simon Trepanier. I'm the executive director of Quebec Federation of Maple Syrup Producers.
0: Quebec produces most of the world's maple syrup, and maple production swings big time year to year based on the weather. The
5: price of maple syrup was very unstable. Uh, when Mother Nature was very generous, suddenly there was a lot of syrup available in the market and the price was like sky dropping. It was amazing. From $3 a pound, uh, sometimes it was like uh, under $1 per pound.
0: Imagine losing two-thirds of your salary from one year to the next. Bank loans for new equipment would dry up. People were selling their land or going bankrupt. And this is when the Maple Federation stepped in.
5: So there was that big referendum in 1989 where 84% of the producers in Quebec province, uh, they said, yes, we want to work together uh, to negotiate price, to stabilize the price, and uh, to build uh, afterwards uh, a strategic reserve.
0: They put a cap on on how many trees their members can tap and came together to negotiate a single province-wide price on maple syrup. All bulk syrup sold in the province had to go through the system, and any syrup left over would be put into a strategic reserve. You might have heard of this reserve because back in 2012, a couple of black marketeers stole more than 500,000 gallons of it. Well, Canada seems to have a a sticky problem when it comes to maple syrup.
3: Apparently, Lots of it.
0: Millions of dollars' worth of maple syrup has been siphoned off from storage in Quebec, with the crime covered up to avoid detection. The crime was actually discovered somewhat accidentally. An auditor doing a routine count climbed the mountain of barrels and nearly fell when he gripped onto one that was empty. Sensational, right? But what you don't hear in those news clips is the way that effectively the Maple Federation's policies have been taking money out of your pocket. Now, the Federation describes itself as a union.
5: It is totally a union of enterprises, yes.
0: But it has also been described as a cartel, an organization that coordinates to prop up prices. Because in Quebec, legally, participation in this Federation system is not optional. Any syrup that you can't sell straight to consumers from your farm is subject to their controls and quotas. And Economics 101 says that when you restrict supply, you increase price. By the way, this is a point that the federation actively disputes.
5: The the quota system does not apply on production itself. And this is maybe misunderstood by a lot of people around. We are, uh, the quota is on the number of taps you are allowed in your uh, sugar bush in Quebec province.
0: Which then determines your production.
5: No, because uh, depending of mother nature, uh, depending of your efficiency as a producer, you can produce, as an example, one pound per tap up to six pounds per taps.
0: Okay, so they restrict taps. And yes, weather does have a lot to do with production from year to year. But if there were more taps, invariably, we'd have more supply and probably lower prices. And when prices are higher, it's the consumers who pay. You might feel fine about this. That higher price supports a whole maple sugar industry that you might harbor warm and nostalgic feels for. But the bottom line is that because Quebec produces most of the world's syrup, they exert a lot of control over the global price. federation also spends a ton of money to increase demand, too. They have a whole marketing campaign, much of it aimed at Asia and Europe, that promotes maple syrup the same way that the Got Milk campaign promotes milk. This has helped to push demand up by 6 or 8% a year. But in a certain way, Quebec's cartel is actually shooting itself in the foot with these efforts, too.
2: Because they were uh, restricting their own output through a quota system, yet setting the price at a relatively high level and so producers everywhere had relatively high stable prices for a while and we're able to do whatever we want here or in other provinces if i want to put in 200,000 taps i can you can't do that in quebec they can't add taps unless they have quota to be
0: able to do it in the mid-2000s quebec was producing 80 percent of the world's maple syrup To put that in perspective, at the height of its power, OPEC, the dreaded oil cartel, produced 55% of the world's oil. So once they stabilized those high prices, the Quebec maple producers probably felt pretty untouchable. But Quebec isn't the only place in the world with maple trees. And so when they looked behind them, they realized there were some pesky Americans riding their coattails.
2: And so you can imagine the frustration that they're putting money into a system to help promote maple and help expand the industry, and the industry is expanding, but they're just
0: losing market share. Since the mid-2000s, Quebec's share of the maple market has dropped to just over 70%. And so, and so when you say they're losing market share, it's like um, everyone <laughs> here was expanding, but they were saying the same size, so all the excess demand that they were creating with their marketing was going to you guys, What kind of what you're saying.
2: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And they were paying for it.
0: Thanks, guys. (laughs) Yeah.
2: If the Quebec producers hadn't invested in that, I don't think... Probably I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you about this, because I don't think the maple industry would have been growing at at such a clip, and my partners probably wouldn't really have had much interest in it.
5: Uh, Quebec province has always been like the locomotive of the industry. And, uh, and there's now new wagons uh, behind that locomotive because everybody wants to join the, the, uh, the train, basically.
0: And so this is what was going on in Island Pond the massive factory at the start of the episode, the one people didn't want to talk to me about? So the facility had very shiny, gleaming new stuff, and it just felt very strange. Like, we're walking into some creepy lab where you don't know what they're doing. I think the people who know about Sweet Tree are hesitant to talk about it because they recognize that there's something different here. Something that the public might not like about the scale of this operation. And if you're a supporter of the forest industry or if you're rooting for a struggling town like Island Pond, you probably don't want to come off like you're saying something bad about this operation, even though something about it makes you feel a little weird. I called and emailed Sweet Tree a half-dozen times since I started reporting the story, but I couldn't get any sort of comment. They've given a handful of interviews since opening, but they've never said where they're selling their syrup. I can't tell you for sure, but I have theories. Have you heard of maple water? It's basically straight sap, sold at yoga studios and health food stores. Mike Farrell says it's one of the markets he's focused on, and it's my guess that Sweet Tree is angling for something like that, too. Not straight syrup— but new products, new markets, maybe new countries even. This is the reason that the investment wing of a Massachusetts life insurance company could be convinced to pour scads of money into tapping a million maple trees. Why someone who works for Bain Capital would decide to invest his money in hiring Mike Farrell to tap hundreds of thousands of trees in Vermont and a similar sister shop in New York State. It's the case of people who understand economics, recognizing the opportunity to be a free rider, a suckerfish attached to the side of the massive shark that is the Quebec maple industry. Money flows where there's opportunity, and one of the best opportunities in natural resources and agriculture right now is maple. And so now for a quick note of skepticism on this whole scene, David Marvin of Butternut Mountain. Dave and his family company are a packing house. They buy, bottle, and resell over sixty percent of Vermont's maple syrup. The money that's being paid most of us think is well above what one would rationally pay for a maple company. But so are you saying are you saying this is a maple bubble? No. The because somebody would construe that to think that things aren't good in the maple business. Are people maybe paying too much for maple companies? In my humble opinion, they might be, but I think a lot of people who are much more connected to markets than I am would say there's also an awful lot of money looking for a home, and some of that is not necessarily being deployed rationally. Since Sweet Tree and Mike Farrell both started up, there have been a couple of really good years for maple production. Even with the Quebec quota system, all of this excess supply can't help but push prices down. Mike told me he's not sure he would have spent as much as he has, given the current low prices. In other words, this could have been Alan Greenspan-style irrational exuberance. But regardless, it is supercharging a trend that was already underway. Making maple more capital-intensive. Making it more big business. This isn't your grandfather's maple orchard anymore. It's Bain Capital's. But again, gut check here. Capital coming in means more scale, more efficiency, lower prices, maybe even higher pay for workers. But are you starting to lose some of that nostalgic sheen for the maple industry? Well, how far can we take this? Harvesting maple syrup is a form of agriculture. A forest full of maple doesn't necessarily just spring into existence all on its own. Maple producers cut out trees they don't want and try to encourage more maple trees to grow. This is just something called extensive agriculture. Instead of a monoculture where there's just one thing that's planted as densely as possible to maximize the efficiency of planting and harvesting, sugar maples are part of a forest. Yes, the forest owner cuts out all of the spruce and the hemlock, but there's still a whole understory that gets to grow alongside the maples, and it's relatively diverse. But letting lots of messy nature into your agricultural operation complicates things too. Squirrels chew on the tubing. Moose stumble their way through the sugar bush, tearing out your taps. This is just the cost of doing business. But does it have to be?
4: This is... One of those kind of crazy things that happens from time to time, uh, where you make an observation, you're doing work on some one, something completely different, and have this sort of aha moment that leads you somewhere else. So,
0: this is Abby Vandenberg again, University of Vermont maple scientist, giant brain, you remember. Abby made a discovery back in 2014 that kind of made some people freak out she and a colleague were trying to see how sap was moving through specific parts of maple trees. So they chopped a bunch of maple saplings off at about waist height and strapped a vacuum tube to the top of the stump. When you look at the photos of this, it's almost like a tiny maple stump wearing a swim cap attached to a vacuum tube.
4: that We were collecting sap in that way. We weren't just collecting moisture, we were collecting sap.
0: They realized, holy smokes, this could be
4: something. You know, from there, we like, oh, this may be an entirely different way to do this.
0: If you can take a little sapling and get sap, why couldn't you just plant a whole field of little saplings tight together, like six times as many as in a standard forest?
4: It would be a way to expand maple production for, say, you know, a farmer that's like, oh, I've got a couple of acres, am I going to plant... Grapevines, or am I going to plant maple trees and make maple syrup?
0: Every year, come sugaring time, some of those saplings could get cut so they'd just be a stump and a vacuum cap would go over the top of each one. It would look like a huge field of stumps attached to IVs. The trees would re sprout from the stump and a few years later you could do it all again. No longer would you need a mature forest you could have a maple plantation.
4: Maybe, you know, you don't have to invest in 200 acres of mature forest land in Vermont to make a little maple syrup. Maybe you can, you know, instead of having a Christmas tree plantation, have an acre or two of maple and use that as, you know, have that as one of your crops and just kind of a new way to look at it.
0: One last gut check here. This is what industry does. Drives relentlessly towards efficiency. Wall Street comes in, provides funding to turn a backwoods, backyard, part-time industry into an efficient, high-capital, highly productive business. So how would you feel if one day, instead of coming from a relatively diverse forest, your syrup came from what critics would call... A soulless plantation. Are we going to watch as one of the last bastions of extensive agriculture is converted into yet another field crop? I'm gonna say, like the idea of a field of like tightly planted, four-foot-tall saplings with like suction caps on the top of them is a little horrifying to me. <laughs> You're not the only one. <laughs> and so, uh, one of the biggest.
2: Challenges as that is just from a marketing perspective, because we talked before about, you know, my favorite sugar bush and the feeling you get when you're in that sugar bush. You want to get that feeling standing in that field.
0: Okay, so maybe this is a step that the industry isn't ready to take yet. Abby announced her innovation with a big splash about four years ago, and as of yet, nobody has even tried it. It could be that this is just too far from the nostalgic picture that Maple uses to market itself. But it also just might not be possible. Sugar maples are finicky trees.
2: I also was um, skeptical of the economics because I know how difficult it is to be able to grow orchards of maple trees and get them up to that size.
0: So we're probably not on the cusp of seeing matrix-like sugar maple pod farms. And as Abby points out, just because big business is spending tens of millions on mystery maple factories and thousands of miles of tubing doesn't mean you have to.
4: You don't need much to make maple syrup. And, you know, I talk to people all the time that are like, yeah, this is my first year. I'm going to tap five trees in my yard. I'm, you know, making it evaporate out of hotel pans. And, you know, this works at any scale.
0: I guess... It shouldn't really surprise us that the one product that seemed would be impossible to make efficiently isn't actually immune to the march of technology. But I like maple syrup a lot, and I'm not about to haul buckets and boil sap all spring, so I guess I'm glad that producers are finding ways to do that less. So if you buy maple syrup at the store, just don't imagine that that sap has ever languished in a bucket on the side of a tree. And if you've got maples in your backyard and want to make some the old-fashioned way, just don't run the numbers on how long that syrup took to make. Outside In was produced this week by me, Sam Evans-Brown, with help from Hannah McCarthy, Justine Paradise, Taylor Quimby, Nick Capadice, and Jimmy Gutierrez. Erica Janik is our executive producer. Maureen McMurray is the director of Dance Off GIF Production. A big thank you this week to Mark Canella, Pascal Terrio, and Leslie Marks. Especially Leslie, whose book, The Economics of Collusion, inspired a whole digression into the American potato cartel that wound up on the cutting room floor. Music in this episode by Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio.